This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt chorley today uh, we have been in manchester the tour continues i was at the lowey theater last night uh, so we did the show, uh, the Times Radio show, from the People's History Museum in Manchester. Uh, coming up on uh, today's episode, we look back on the public inquiry into the Manchester Arena bombing. It's coming up to five years since the, the bombing uh, happened. David Collins from the Sunday Times will talk us uh, through what he's learned from that and what to expect when it reports uh, in this summer. But first, we kick off, as ever, with our columnist panel. Today, we're joined by Times Radio's very own Phil Williams. And from the Manchester Evening News, it's Helena Vesti. What a pleasure to see you in person. It's, I haven't seen you since Cheltenham Literature Festival. That's true. That was a lot of fun, but it was, co- it was freezing, wasn't it? Yeah. Sitting really, in that tent. Really, it was really, really cold. Really. It was so cold that on day two, I went and bought a separate fleece <laughs> for the second programme. It was so cold, we had to drink beer just to keep warm, I seem to remember, because <laughs> it was at the other end of the day. How is it being on in daylight on Times Radio? It's, it's slightly mesmerising. The, the sunlight's <laughs> slightly blinding. And where do you, could, where do, you do the show from? Because you do the show for Manchester every night. Yeah, so we're at the People's History Museum, which is kind of in the centre of town, quite near to Spinning Fields, which is quite a cool part of town to socialise in. And my show comes from about two miles behind you. Okay. I hope it does. You've got some Swiss, Swiss yeah, studios. Down at Media don't. City. Oh, which is where, where I was last night. Media decamped. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was so at the bang Lowry. opposite the Lowry yeah, Theatre yeah, yeah. is where I do the show from. There's a small production company called Audio Always who are superb. And did you see right behind you, did you see the cobbles from the window? You can see Coronation Yes, Street. I saw the cobbles yeah. and uh, I went in the Blue Peter Garden. Did you? You, know you didn't the, vandalise it. Like you know who's man, responsible for the Blue Peter Garden being there? No, go on. Tim Lavelle. Boss man Tim Lavelle. He was the editor really? of Blue Peter when they moved from London to Salford, and he moved the Blue Peter Garden. Uh, and he said, the garden comes or I'm not coming. Yeah, he was send, sending me pictures yet of him meeting Princess Anne. The funny thing is, he's on a delay, isn't he? So he yeah, can't he can't, quite he hear hasn't us. He's, he's sitting there <laughs> drinking a coffee. He, he hasn't got to the bit yet where we start talking about it. Anyway, so Phil Williams is here. Uh, Helena Vesti is also here for the Manchester <coughs> News. Morning, how are you? Morning, I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. Well, it's, ni- it's nice to have you here. It's nice to get out of, uh, out of London town. In fact, let's start by talking, because you cover... Uh, well, NHS social care patients, so you, the, yes, the world right. of health. Yes, everything that's to do with health under that umbrella. Very good. That's me. And you've been looking at, uh, basically, while everyone's talked about the pandemic's over, all the restrictions mm-hmm. have gone, hospitals in Manchester are really struggling. Yes, that's right. And I'm 
that's not unusual. Um, over the past two years, we've had a, a really difficult um, situation up here in, in Greater Manchester, really across our hospitals. Disproportionately, Manchester has suffered um, the effects of the pandemic for, for a variety of reasons. That's the health and wealth makeup of, of the region um, as much as it is just uh, the sheer volume of cases yeah. that we've had up here combined with um, difficulties with funding for our NHS up here. Um, and don't forget, Matt, when it first opened up last summer, when you were able to go out, we weren't. Yeah, of course. That's Manchester right. was That's constantly right. in the like the tougher tiers. Yeah, parts of Greater Manchester were, were never out of restrictions. Yeah. For, so we've had a really long pandemic um, up here. And I think um, we had a very difficult Omicron wave at the start of this year. And we just started to see, according to a lot of senior nurses, senior doctors that I speak to on a regular basis, a bit of respite over the course of February and March. And now that we're seeing nationally those coronavirus cases start to tick up again, I think we're seeing the, the sort of problem spiral once more in, in our hospitals. And, and what that looks like largely is a lot of staff having to isolate because that's still the rule in the NHS that ideally NHS staff shouldn't be giving their patients COVID because that's not... That's never, generally a bad Generally thing. quite yeah, a yeah. bad idea. Um, and the more staff that you have going off sick, obviously... That leaves wards that are that are really full at the moment. People have sat on things through the pandemic. Their acuity has has become more severe just because either they've not felt comfortable going to the doctors or they've been put on a waiting list and they're all in hospital now, potentially with no staff there because they might it's be a, isolated. It's a double bonus. You've got yeah. more people with COVID going to hospital. Yeah. When they get there, there are fewer staff because of COVID. Yeah. And you've got all the people who may be put off going to hospital now, now starting and to actually to maybe hospital. now thinking well we've opened up now maybe i will exactly. go to the doctors and it turns out they're exactly. more ill than they thought and they're in hospital too yeah exactly a lot of people are more ill than they were two years ago for yeah. obvious reasons and so they end up in a and e and things like that and and that all feeds into this very pressured situation in our hospitals at a time when you're going to have more staff going off and, and it's also not just about the sheer number of staff who are having to isolate a really important point is about mix of experience if you have more senior staff who are likely to be older their children might be in school for example and that can be a bit of a hotbed for infections kids bring stuff back into the home you have more senior staff testing positive suddenly you've got this massive nadir of of experience on your wards and yeah. that can they're the ones who are more likely to be off sick more yeah. likely to be off sick you're left with perhaps more inexperienced through no fault of their own students things like that who are dealing with massive amounts of patients and that's when the the concerns for risks to patient safety come in from some of the some of the really leading figures that i've spoken to representatives for the royal college of nursing and the vice president of the royal college of emergency medicine have both flagged that as an issue one thing that stood out to me in your piece you said that one consultant says more than 10 people a day are waiting over 12 hours to be seen at hospitals in the region and paramedics said the pressure that they were facing is like a hectic New Year's Eve mm. every weekday. Yeah. So it's right. New Year's Eve madness every on a, week on, on a week. Regular Wednesday morning. Yeah. yeah. And that and that's really concerning. And again, that's that's coming back to this element of people have sat on things through the pandemic and are now much worse in terms of their health than they otherwise would have been had they just gone to their GP in February 2020, which they obviously might not have been able to do yeah. because we were all in lockdown at the time and they've put things off and, and their illnesses have just become worse and now they're down at A&E, but, but along with everybody else, so there's no... Yeah. When I was seriously ill beginning of the year, 
um, and COVID brought about bronchitis as a, as a secondary infection. My GP was amazing because I didn't go anywhere near them for obvious reasons. Um, when I phoned him and I said, look, I've had COVID, but I'm now testing negative. And he heard me speak for a bit and he just said to me, um, oh, that's bronchitis. And it was all done on the phone. You fill out a form online, a triage form, and yep. within 45 minutes they called back. And he diagnosed that, and the prescription was waiting for me at the pharmacy. And was that right? Yeah, correct, spot on, mm. yeah. But then I suppose the big concern is that there were lots of times when doctors don't pick that, or people don't access the forms. I think the worst part is when you can't access the consultation. Yeah. You know, that phone consultation was invaluable to me, because I yeah. just thought, up until that point, I didn't think I had bronchitis. I'd had it before. Okay. And, and I didn't think I'd had that. I thought it was just the COVID taking a while to shift. And so I was there thinking, oh, I feel worse today, but I'm testing negative. Why am I feeling worse? I should be feeling better. And I'll take the kids to the park next door for half an hour. I was puffing and panting yeah. just to get there, and it was ridiculous. And so, yeah, I'll tell you the other thing just on this, which I don't know if, if this is happening up here, but my parents are in Birmingham. My mum needs a hip operation. And so she's on one consultant's waiting list. But she got a phone call recently to say... Um, we're now in the situation where we've got lots of empty um, theatres because people are cancelling because of COVID. So would you like to go on a standby list as well? And then she's had the call on that. Wow. So she's still waiting on this proper list, but yeah. on the standby list, she's had a call because they've got an empty theatre, loads of cancellations, and she's going in this week for a pre-op. So that is another kind of inventive way that they're making use of empty that's spaces. Like the and yeah, yeah. Uh, well, there was a, there was a, um, there's a story on the Times today about them using uh, AI to try and predict what's happening uh, oh, to forecast, right. you know, to basically use technology instead of just like, having a big long list and working your way through it. Yeah. Um, using, uh, be able to try to predict A&E admissions weeks in advance using artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. including 111 calls and the weather, apparently. And then it can... I don't quite know how that's going to work. But, oh. well, I suppose the it's going to be nice in a couple of weeks, so we're going to have loads of drunk yeah. people in the day after. It seems to it's be. a fact on whether you can get in, isn't it? Yeah. And actually, one of the things, I was talking to um, family in Somerset at the weekend, Helena, and they were saying that uh, a relative, uh, they had to call an ambulance. It took like eight, nine, ten hours to arrive. Mm -hmm. And then when the paramedics got there, they said that the issue is it's not a shortage of paramedics. It's that when they get to the hospital, they can't get them out of the ambulance because there's no room in the hospital because there's not enough staff. Uh, and so they basically just sit for ages outside the hospital with the patients. Yeah, that's right. And I think another thing that's that's worth noting, particularly where lack of beds inside hospitals are concerned, that um, in Greater Manchester, we have a particular problem at the moment where you have a lot of people who are medically fit for discharge. Some it, it, at, at times through the pandemic, very recently, actually, at the start of this year, that figure has been at around 1,000 patients out of about 5,000 beds in all of Greater Manchester of people who are actually fit, fit enough to go home and are essentially being babysat in hospital. Yeah. And the reason that that happens is because of shortages in, in social, care. social care. So throughout um, the more recent months of the pandemic, we saw a lot of um, Greater Manchester's care homes shut their doors to prevent outbreaks, people coming back from hospital, maybe they yeah. have COVID or have bugs and things like that. And um, care homes can't risk having an outbreak. And, and therefore, you have a lot of people who are just sort of stuck and that and means interesting a lot of people can't get in because the the whole conversation about the national insurance rise uh the the health and social care levy mm -hmm. uh which has been all, all this argument about um the money was going to go to tackling waiting lists first and then after that it was going to go to social care but actually mm -hmm. the two things are connected if Very you sorted much. out social care that would help bring down the waiting list the, yeah. the, this 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 distinction this, this sort of wall that we put between the two is doesn't make any sense yeah it's also inextricably linked i mean you'd fundamentally need beds to have people in to even do their procedures. So those people who are on waiting lists will remain on the waiting lists until 
there's that there's sort of a release on some of the bed occupancy i mean bed occupancy at the moment in greater manchester is hovering about uh, above 90 percent and a, a lot of our leaders say that to really get by a hospital should be max 80 percent so we're already 10 percent above that yeah. that very high threshold um and so really there are questions to be answered about whether we're going to see a massive reduction um in waiting list for procedures which is what the health secretary has said that he is aiming for in the coming years when actually there's really no space in hospitals to be had and probably won't be won't be but you know can i just add um and i hope she won't mind me sharing this but my auntie was recently discharged from a hospital because they said you don't need to be here now and we need the bed and you need to go and four days later she was back in yeah and so again that doesn't help the system either oh, that's that the thing relative was discharged yeah. from one hospital and ended up in another one and it just yeah that just <coughs> perpetuates i mean there's a lot of long-term consequences to being on a waiting list as well one um piece of work that i've been um monitoring over the, the last few months is the amount of patients who will be on really strong painkillers things like opioids morphine for a really long amount of time for a couple of years and what kind of effect that's going to have on for example drug and and rehab services further down the line we've had a lot of patients um talk to me about how they're concerned that actually once they've had their procedure once they've recovered from their hip operation their knee operation they might end up being addicts to painkillers and they're really concerned about the process by which they're going to have to wean themselves off that medication so a lot of really concerning long-term effects yeah, as yeah. well as the short-term sort of revolving door <laughs> in hospitals um, before we go um uh, we need to talk about the other big story the really yeah. big story yeah, the yeah, most yeah. important yeah, story yeah, yeah. on earth yeah yeah chris, so chris well, rock I'm, and will I'm, smith yeah i'm so into this story because this this was my old beat so i used to do the oscars uh, for another radio station i was the entertainment correspondent and went out to three oscars and um uh, i've interviewed will smith three times i've not interviewed chris rock chris rock strikes me as a man who's got classic small man syndrome <laughs> very loud, very brash, and yeah. then when confronted, I'm not sure he's as brave as he likes to make out. Yeah. Um, I tell you uh, the defining thing on this is that before I left the house to come and see you, knowing that you'd ask about it, I said to Mrs. W, if that was us and someone said that about you, would you want me to go up and lamp them? And she said, no, absolutely not. She said, I'd be mortified. She said, I'd want you to call them out, but I wouldn't want you to resort to violence. Yeah. And I think that might be the undoing of Will Smith here. I mean, what you, it's bizarre. I've just been speaking to Ian Nathan, who's our film guy. Yeah. And we'll be doing this in earnest at 8 o'clock tonight because yeah. it's movie night, as you know. And he said to me, um, how would Smith have reacted had Wanda Sykes done that joke, for example? Yeah. You know, then, then what does he do? That's a really good point. Second point, in any other arena, Smith leaves in cuffs. Yeah. But because it's the Oscars, he gets a trophy. Yeah. He starts crying on stage and he gets a standing ovation. Yeah, yeah. Only half an hour, 45 minutes after he's just gone up and lamped someone. Yeah, yeah. And they, we call it a slap, that's fine, but I've seen that video five times now. He's punched him. It's yeah. not a slap. It's not an open hand. He's cuffed him. Do you know what I also thought as well? If if someone had made a similar joke in the House of Commons <laughs> like about <laughs> Carrie Johnson, yeah. Boris Johnson could not walk across the Commons <laughs> and slap Keir Starmer. And everyone go, oh, yeah, but he did make a joke about his what? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a... What you think, the fact that Will Smith is basically, I think, my sense is more popular than Chris Rock. Chris Rock's clearly overstepped the mark. So it's like he's getting it, he's slightly being let off. No, no, there's, there's history here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there's, there's, Rock's had a pop at his family in 2016 yeah. on a TV show. So he show. knew what he was doing. Yeah, there's also, there's this weird situation in Hollywood where it's an open secret that the Smiths have an open relationship. But I'm not sure Will's kind of party to those jokes. Well, they right. have so discussed it, actually. Jada Pinkett Smith has her own talk show, and has, yeah. they've, they've openly discussed their right. um, 
marital sort of concerns and issues in in quite a I guess a forward-thinking way and uh, that was the sort of first I heard about their relationship and my head immediately went there when I heard about the the slap stroke punch this morning but I something that I was thinking about on the way over here is essentially the Oscars is a bit like a Christmas party for any other workplace (laughs) is it not it's, it's a glorified It's just party. Hollywood's yeah. Christ- works yeah. office Christmas works, party, yeah. Cr- a Christmas do, you know, perhaps a leaving do, something like that. And if if my boss went went over to somebody and punched them in the face, again, you'd be... Or if it's like the, you know, and I've, like d- I've done a few of these, if it's like the National Association of Estate Agents Awards. Mm. Yes. If someone from one estate agent got up and made a joke about another estate agent, and, and what, they, they went and punched I think he probably would end up in cuffs. Yeah. Because yeah. 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 the other thing is, when you host those things, as I've done as well, and you're on stage, that stage has to be a safe space. Yeah, yeah. It's dangerous enough. You can't it have is. people. You can't be thinking someone's going to storm the stage. Well, I was thinking that last night. If I can't have people. I can't have it being free. If I'm rude about someone, they can't come up and settle it by... The other I mean, the point just to add is Chris Rock's gag, because nobody, I've listened to a lot of radio on this, people seem to be dodging the gag, but I don't see a reason to dodge the gag. He said, I'm looking forward to G.I. Jane 2. In the first one, Demi Moore shaves her head. Um, Jada Pinkett Smith shaved her head for the Oscars though because she's got alopecia. Yeah. And I think, uh, also, are we not in 2022 beyond jokes about people's appearance? Have well, we not moved past that? Particularly we not where black hair is concerned, there's so much that's yeah. tied up in that as there's well. There's a I lot. Of, well, the crucial thing, and this is quite often the case we see, it's not a very good joke. That's the point. It's not a very funny joke. It's not defensive. I think you could even, sometimes there are jokes you can make about someone's appearance. If it's a funny joke, oh, if yeah. ultimately, it's a, if the joke is funny, yeah. that gets you quite a long way. It's not a very, I mean, who, who, who can remember G.I. Jane and the fact that you, yeah. you need to go through a lot of steps to get And there. also, Rock says, when Will Smith starts shouting at him from the floor then when he's returned to his seat, Rock says, it's a G.I. Jane joke, man. Well, it's not, actually. It's an alopecia joke. Helen University and uh, Phil Williams there joining us on the podcast. Don't forget you can subscribe to The Times right now. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box so you can read about all the things we talk about on the podcast. Coming up, we look back at the Manchester Arena Inquiry. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. I've come down to the Manchester Arena bombing memorial. It's just outside the uh, cathedral here in Manchester. So lovely gardens, all the bulbs around, daffodils are all out, and a sort of circle of uh, marble going around the outside of the of the memorial, uh, naming each of the 22 people killed in the 
Manchester Arena bombing uh, almost five years ago uh, in May 2017. They are Liam Coe, Chloe Rutherford, Megan Hurley, Kelly Brewster, Eric McLeod, Nell Jones, Angelica Cliss, Marcin Cliss, Lisa Lees, Alison Howell, Elaine McIver, John Atkinson, Philip Tron, Jane Tweddle, and then over on this side, Sorrel Lenskuk. And then over on this side, Sorrel Letskovoski, Wendy Fall, Martin Hett, Safi Rose Roussos, Courtney Boyle, Georgina Callender, Olivia Campbell Hardy, and Michelle Kiss. They are the 22 people who died back in May 2017 after Salman Abedi detonated a bomb hidden in his rucksack at an Ariana Grande concert at the Manchester Arena. The independent inquiry into what happened that night started three years later in September 2020, designed to investigate the deaths of the victims of the attack. Overall, it's heard from 267 witnesses. It officially ended two weeks ago. Of the first report from the inquiry last year, which found that Salman Abedi should have been identified as a security threat before the attack. The second report examined the actions of the emergency services. It's due to report back before Parliament breaks for the summer recess in July. There's another report based on what the security services know and due to be published later on. So five years on from this awful attack, I really remember waking up. I was writing the Red Box morning email. I get up every morning and you know, take a sideways look at the political news. And I remember waking to the attack and just being, it just really struck me that this was an attack directed at children, children who were attending a pop concert. And it's just, I think all of us will remember where we were when we, we heard what had happened. But five years on, coming up to five years in May this year, how much has Manchester changed since then? And what do the hope families hope to find out in the next two reports in the inquiry? Well, before heading up to Manchester, I caught up with the Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham. The attack happened only a couple of weeks after he'd taken on the role, and I started by asking him where he was on the night of the explosion. I was two weeks into, into my time in office as Mayor, and um, a very ordinary Monday night, to be honest. I played five aside, popped over on my way home with a bottle of wine for my dad, because it was his birthday, and, and then was at home watching Newsnight when... The, the terrible news landed. So, yeah, it's a moment that I, everybody, uh, not just in Greater Manchester, but across the country, probably will never forget. That was Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Greater Manchester, remembering that night back in May 2017 uh, when the bombing happened at the Manchester Arena and 22 people died. So what we thought we'd do is take a look back over the past year and a half from the inquiry into what happened. Uh, David Collins is the northern editor of the Sunday Times and joins me now. Uh, here at the, uh, the cafe, the People's Museum. Morning, morning, Matt. Uh, it's nice to have you. Um, it's nice to have you with us. Uh, and you're going to sort of take us through sort of five big things that we found out uh, from the inquiry. Um, before we start going uh, through them, what's it been like covering the inquiry? Because it's been such an enormous undertaking. It only finished what a couple of weeks ago. That's right. So um, it's been a huge, you know, public inquiry. You know, hundreds of, you know. People have, have given evidence across, uh, you know, the emergency services, um, you know, the police, the fire brigade, ambulance, the families. Um, you know, we've had MI5 behind closed doors uh, give evidence. Um, and I think, you know, generally speaking, I think the view of the families is that the inquiry has done a great job. 
you know what's the i suppose the, what's the point of the inquiry what is it trying to is it trying to get to the bottom of you know could it have been prevented get what happened on the night how do you prevent because it's such a broad thing it is a broad thing i think what the what the inquiry uh, said it would do from its outset when pretty patel set it up was uh, look at the circumstances around the, the bomb in the lead up to it how it happened and then learn any lessons basically going forward and i think that is a that's a key thing really for the families of the victims what can we learn from this and how can we stop something like this ever happening again at one of our big you know concert venues one of our kind of big uh, you know public venues that we have across the country and there are major lessons to be learned from this you know there were critical failings that have been found in how our you know, emergency services responded, really. And Fegan Moyes, who's the um, mother of Martin Hett, who was one of the victims, she's, she's moved to try and get the law changed, hasn't she, to make venues more responsible for uh, being prepared for this. So, and I think that sort of sense of, well, what can we do so that the same thing doesn't happen again is really important for the, for the families. Hugely. Because I think, I, I mean, I think especially with someone like Fegan, she tries to look, you know, for the positives, what what can you learn? What you know, what what can we? What are the positives to draw out of such a, a tragic event like this? And I think the worst thing for the families that they could see is, you know, something like this happening again. And you know, at the arena itself, you know, we saw, you know, arguments that there were security failings, yeah. failings with the first aiders that they weren't properly trained. Um, you know, there were arguments that the stewards could have confronted the bomber quicker. Um, you know, British Transport Police. There was a lot of argument during the inquiry about who was even responsible for the actual location of yeah. what happened because it was in a kind of a nowhere place between, you know, the Victoria train station here and the arena. It's kind of in the foyer. So yeah. there was a lot of argument to and fro between the event. Who's got the air you know, responsibility? Who covers yeah, the security? Yeah. And so we, although the inquiry sort of officially finished a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had the first report from it. Uh, which looked into sort of the security side of it, uh, and it particularly looked at uh, how Salman Abadi could have been or should have been identified as a threat by arena security. Um, and I suppose, well, there's two things in there. There's, should the security services have, have known that he was a threat, but also in that actual moment, somebody wandering around while the concert was ongoing, the Anna Grande concert was ongoing, with a rucksack, could something have been done? What, what, what was the sense out of that, that first report? So... I think what the findings were, so, you know, the chair um, uh, found that essentially Salman Abedi could have been confronted quicker in the foyer, that the stewards could have, you know, it is unlikely that somebody armed with a suicide bomb, he's got a trigger in his pocket and a rucksack on his back, you know, preventing the bomb exploding in any sort of way would be really unlikely but I think what the, what, what the inquiry has found so far would be you know if he was confronted quicker you know he possibly could have would have detonated it and it would have caused less of, of a loss of life because the, it, cause it, it was doing it as people were leaving the concert that was the, the crucial exactly and he basically walked up to a crowd of, yeah. of young people of children with their yeah. parents yeah. and he went for maximum impact he had a bomb that had you know literally you know nails and yeah. things on unpleasant things like that in it so he was going to inflict maximum damage and he he, he went at time of his choosing up to a crowd yeah. of young people and and, and detonated with it but then i suppose the thing is what you're asking is someone who's 
you know, probably not paid very much working as a security guard at an arena to suddenly essentially throw them, you know, they're not bomb disposal experts or members of the security services trying to work out the, you know, the way, essentially laying down their own life in the hope of, you know, preventing something worse. So that's a... That's a tough call. That's a really on. reasonable point. And, and also, you know, I think one of the stewards who, a member of the public, basically reported Salman uh, to a, a young steward as a teenager. And the teenager said, you know, he didn't feel confident in yeah. reporting him and, and confronting him properly, which is a good argument. But, you know, there's another argument that, for example, British Transport Police, they were supposed to be patrolling yeah. that foyer. And we heard evidence that two of the officers who were supposed to be doing that were off on a, on a two-hour kebab takeaway yeah. break, which they then took back. They had, you know, a big long lunch break on the platform of a train station. So, you know, it's not just the stewards, yeah, it's the, the, police, yeah, the police and the it's, others as well. And it's the entire, you know, plan. Let's look at um, some of the evidence that we heard at the inquiry then. Um, you, I know you singled out, you were particularly moved by some of the survivors uh, telling stories, including the testimony from Martin Hibbert. He was standing just metres away from the bomber. And described the bastard as being like hit by a ten-ton truck. He was less paralysed from the waist down. His teenage daughter Eve also suffered a serious brain injury. And he told the inquiry, "We'll take a listen to this." He told the inquiry how two hours passed before they arrived at hospital, and he wanted to hear the truth of the baffling emergency response. I hear a, 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 an almighty bang. I felt like I'd been hit by a, a ten-ton truck. I, I was panicking because I couldn't breathe. I, I felt like I couldn't breathe. She was she was gasping for breath, so I, I could see she was she was dying in front of my eyes, and I, and I knew that I was dying. I told Chris to if I didn't make it to tell my wife that I loved her, and that I'd hopefully done everything that I could. I was just bothered about Eve, really. I didn't think I was going to get out, and uh, I just kept saying, you know, where is everybody? Where where are the paramedics? And I think I just kept getting fed up of being told they're on the way, they're, they're coming. But I knew I knew I'd been in there an hour. I, I, I knew that as soon as I woke up. The only thing that kept going through my mind was, "You've got one job to do now, and it's to make sure he gets out." And, and that's what I did. I mean, even to listen to that, um, David, is really tough. Even now, I mean, the other thing that hearing Martin here talking about that, you know, in the centre of one of the great cities in mm. the world, mm. this wasn't like this something that happened in a remote. And actually, we're not talking about thousands and thousands of casualties, luckily. I mean, mm. it could have been much worse. Um, and the fact that he was waiting for two hours to get to hospital is just incredible. It's astonishing. And, you know, the thing that struck me is, you know, we've just had one of the anniversaries for the 9-11 attack. Yeah. And this is what I always tell people, you know, after having covered this, you know, pretty comprehensively for the last year and a half, um, you know, it just strikes me that the images of those firefighters going up the towers, yeah. you know, and then when the when one of the towers collapsed in New York, at, 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 you know, at 9-11, you know, you had all those firefighters who yeah. died, didn't you? You know, and, yeah. and people were so, you know, moved by that. They, but they were doing their job. Yeah. And in Manchester, you know, it took more than two hours for... Uh, the first fire brigade presence to turn up at the arena. So what went wrong? You know, a lot of the firefighters, when you asked them, uh, you know, they were in tears on the night. They were let down. They were failed by the leadership. By the decision-making higher up. Yeah, because yeah. there was high... Because, I mean, a, one key thing that really has come out of this inquiry is the absolute red tape and bureaucracy that we yeah. see around these kind of responses and that people are trying to stick to plans and operations that they may have trialled once 
They're not used to them. And they're terrified of making a mistake. And the problem is, that in a, when you're doing a, a planning exercise, it might seem the right thing. Well, in the event of a, a terror attack, you would want to make sure the area is safe before going in. That's an entirely logical thing to say in a meeting room with a flip chart. Yep. In reality, what that means, there were people then dying in, in the venue because they weren't being, um, weren't being helped. And Greater Manchester Police admitted it made errors on the night of the bombing and that it's planning for this sort of thing said catastrophic failures by an incident commander in the early stage of the response were not foreseeable. This was the Deputy Chief Constable Ian Pilling, who apologised unreservedly for failings by his force in the emergency service response. The response of so many of our staff, particularly first responders on the night, was exemplary, extraordinarily brave and quite humbling. However, I would also like to acknowledge and apologise for failings by Greater Manchester Police. Our failure to notify other emergency services of the declaration of Plato and failure to establish effective inter-service communications was unacceptable and we apologise for this unreservedly. And this is an apology not just to the victims and the families but also to all those affected by the attack, including our emergency services colleagues. Uh, so that was uh, Ian Pilling from the, uh, the police. Let's also reflect on the fact that actually there were some positive... You know, heroic testimonies that came out. The inquiry heard from members of the public who, tr- who actually tried to help the injured while they were waiting for those paramedics to, rev- to arrive. The off-duty nurse, Bethany Crook, tried to help casualties. She told the hearing how she felt helpless, lost and alone while waiting for help. And the family of the care worker, John Atkinson, he was uh, 28, who was killed in the attack, praised the heroic efforts of members of the public who tried to save him. Let's hear from Ronald Blake. He phoned 999 within 52 seconds of the blast and used a belt as a tourniquet to try and stem the bleeding from John Atkinson's leg. I think I turned him over and I noticed he was bleeding from his leg. Saw where he was bleeding from and put the belt round above that and just wrapped it round and pulled it as tight as possible. They were uh, conscious, awake, talking, but in a lot of pain. Just went more quiet at times, but I just kept saying talk to me. You were with uh, John for almost an hour, weren't you? Yeah. Uh, you didn't have any first aid equipment on you? No. You weren't trained in first aid? No. You were just doing what any decent person would do yeah. to try and save a life. And that's incredible, Dave, when we're talking about trained professionals not mm-hmm. entering the building, leaving have-a-go heroes to do the best they possibly can. Absolutely. And, you know... The- that, I mean, John Atkinson, who, who died, I mean, the person, you know, unfortunately, he died in hospital shortly afterwards. And, and there are arguments to say from the experts in the inquiry he could have survived had he had first aid quicker. The same for Safi Roussos, yeah. the youngest yeah. person, the eight-year-old who, who died. And, you know, some of the testimony from Safi's family uh, is absolutely heartbreaking. She was there with her mother, Lisa, when the bomb went off. Safi actually survived the initial blast. You know, she was alive. She was asking for her mummy. And Lisa was unconscious. And, you know, I remember Andrew, uh, you know, uh, Lisa's um, husband and Safi's dad, who I've got quite close to during the course of reporting on this, telling me the moment when Lisa woke up in hospital and she opened her eyes and looked at him and said, she's dead, isn't she? And, and, And Andrew just nodding, saying, yeah, she died. And this is the real-world impact of not having first aiders running in straight away. And I I would argue that, yes, okay, there's an initial um, concern over a secondary attack. You know, we know that that's what the police think about. But the problem with 
this entire thing was that the police the police should should have coordinated better they should have been coordinating with the paramedics and firefighters better and they should have flooded that zone as soon as he knew it was safe which was pretty early on with paramedics yeah it's just a heartbreaking listen to those stories i mean it's one i suppose it's terrible isn't it it's one thing when you think well, if your relative died in the attack, that's as a result of a terrible decision by a terrible person who carried out a terror attack. But if they died as a result of decisions made by the good guys, the police, the paramedics, the fire service, it's even harder to sort of reconcile with, isn't it? It is. I, I think, and I think that's when you talk to the families who have lost people. I think you know, there's a lot of anger towards the Abedis. You know, there is. You know, uh, you know, Salman Abedi the bomber who is dead obviously but then you've got Ishmael uh, his eldest brother you know there's question marks over him he was supposed to give evidence at the inquiry he told the inquiry for his uh, legal team that he couldn't give evidence because it might incriminate him Uh, and then uh, he was compelled legally uh, to to give evidence and just before he did that he, he fled the country and flew out of Manchester airport and now he, it's unknown where he is and he's unlikely to ever come back. What a mess, what and, a mess. And I think, I think that is really kind of galling for the families. I think, you know, there's question marks over could MI5 have prevented it? They did have evidence just before. There's two key pieces of evidence that MI5 had that won't say what that evidence was because of national security reasons that um, behind closed doors when it's been looked at by experts for the panel say it could have possibly um, you know allowed MI5 to have looked into Salman Abedi in closer detail just before the attack um, but it's no by no means clear cut that I don't yeah. think but those are really difficult we, I spoke to um, the head of MI5 on the show last year and those are those calls of is this a piece of paper worth following up or putting in the not interesting enough part is really and that's also really tough as well I mean that's the problem I mean with MI5 as well I mean part of the evidence we heard was that MI5 at the time had 20,000 subjects of interest and you think about that I mean that's the population of a small town and Salman Abedi you know he's he's one in a huge mix of of possible suspects yeah you don't have the resources as well Times Radio with Matt Chorley I want to bring in Pete Weatherby one of the lawyers who represents several of the victims families hi Pete good morning Um, I've just been discussing with David the the failings uh, made by the authorities the decisions that were made which left victims essentially you know fending for themselves and relying on members of the public to try and help them and so on um how how can victims families seek redress for any of that well um the inquiry process is the is the is the key part of this and the inquiry process does three things first of all it sets out to determine an official definitive narrative of, of what did and didn't occur secondly it identifies failures and who's accountable for them and then from one and two it moves on to make recommendations to try to prevent uh, another outrage of this um, uh, happening again or if it does to mitigate the effects of it so um, you know we've just finished the preventability stage the MI5 um, stage I'm just listening into what was, was said a few minutes ago about that so the questions that the judge has to, um, uh, the chair has to determine about that will will primarily be: uh, could the security services and the counter-terrorist police have prevented this outrage from occurring? Should they have discovered the plot? 
um, and stopped it happening. Uh, and he, he will then have to make recommendations about um, what he he does or doesn't doesn't find. Um, and, and again, as you've been discussing about the emergency response, I mean, the emergency response um, was hopeless um, in its command and control, or should I say the absence of any command and control. So um, the chair is going to have to determine what did and didn't happen there and what should change for the future. And in terms of the family's uh, experience of going through this inquiry process, I mean, clearly five years, you know, the fact that five years on, it's still ongoing, uh, means that they haven't been able to in any way move on or seek closure, if you like. And actually, it's sort of, to some extent, what they've learned from it has made it even worse, if that was possible, to discover yeah, I mean, the, the terrible we... handling of it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not being critical, but the, but the terminology here, you know, closure and moving on. I mean, if you've lost your eight-year-old daughter, or if you've lost your mum, there there is no moving on from it. There is no. there is a. Well, I suppose, I suppose, I suppose into, what I was meant was the sort of reliving it in real time yeah. again and again and again through the inquiry yeah, no, does not help that um, process. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, what I would say is it's a mixed bag because it's enormously painful and enormously difficult for the families. But it also, in my experience, and I've been involved in quite a number of disaster and outrage cases with multiple deaths, and what I would say is that there is also a catharsis involved and that the process does does assist families in, in, in the process of, uh, of going forward with, with their lives, um, even bearing in mind that they can't put things right. Um, you raise the issue that you know, we're, we're almost five years on, uh, I mean, this is a real um, problem that that I've raised with as many people as I can about this and other um, inquiries and, and, and things. I mean, they just go on too long. Uh, and there are a number of things that can be done about that. I mean, the, the inquiry wasn't set up for years. I mean, that's no fault of the chair. Um, but then the attitude of certain organizations and public authorities generally not just in the arena inquiry but going back to you know hillsborough grenfell um there is a culture of denial rather than a culture yeah. of um um collaboration and cooperation in terms of getting to the truth and, and making things better uh, unfortunately many public authorities and corporations are more interested in their reputation than they are in assisting the process and that is something which makes these processes take far too long which is a massive problem all round you know, for the families primarily from where I, I, I sit but also in terms of making things change and making things yeah. better. Pete it's really good to speak to you thank you for joining us that's Pete Weatherby QC from Garden Court North Chambers he represents seven of the families of the Manchester Evening Bonnie. Um, David, just a last um, thought from you. It's a really interesting point that Pete was making there about how the authorities respond. And from an authority's perspective, just dragging it out for a long time, putting time between the incident and the final report. Lots of those people involved will have moved on. They can say that we've changed our processes. You know, the the sense of shock and outrage is lessened mm. by the by the process of time. Well, it's the Boris Johnson Partygate strategy, isn't yeah. it? You know, it's 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 or even it's, the public inquiry into COVID. You know, which yeah. is. Isn't, you know, again, it's not due to start until later this year. Well, internet, you know, we won't get it before the next election. Yeah, and by then we're thinking about Ukraine, we're thinking yeah. about other things. And I think, I think, I think Pete's right, uh, and I think it's a good point you make. You know, there needs to be more of an immediacy. 
um, just in terms of evidence gathering and you know and we all know you know police investigations for example rely upon getting to witnesses as soon as possible to get that best version of events you know five years on people's memories aren't the same so I think there are a lot of issues and I think the, the what Pete just raised there especially with Grand, Greater Manchester Police I think what the report will find um, which we'll hear the second part at the end of July I think that will be quite explosive for Greater Manchester Police and it will be a national story about how Greater Manchester Police arguably uh, were very concerned about their public image, their public reputation. Uh, there were certain people who were put forward for, you know, awards. Uh, you know, you had the force duty officer on the night, Dale Sexton, who I think, you know, I, I, I think possibly... The, the inquiry will be quite critical of him. He yeah. has changed his evidence in terms of what he's told people. You know, to Andy Burnham's Kerslake inquiry, for example, um, you know, he, he, he's altered his evidence since then um, to this current inquiry. I don't think that will go down well. Um, and and yet, you know, we see Dale Sexton put forward by Greater Manchester Police for a Queen's Medal. You know, he was, he's, yeah, yeah. He's, had a, he's had a medal pinned on his chest by Prince William. And I think a lot of families question that and question yeah. why is Greater Manchester Police doing that? Um, well, we're seeing that's due. To, we're expecting that basically before the summer recess, aren't we? So like end of July. That's right. That's, yeah. So that'll be the second part and the third part later in the year. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.